0: So, uh, I've been asked to speak to you as we begin this conference on historical figure, a man by the name of John Rogers. I never really knew who John Rogers was until I was introduced to him on a plane flight from Los Angeles to Dallas. I'd just been at a conference where I purchased a book written by J.C. Ryle, a book titled Light from Old Times. And as I was reading this book, I was introduced to the Marian martyrs, uh, those men who, and women and children, who were burned at the stake by Mary I, better known as Bloody Mary. And at that time in my life, in my ministry, uh, I was going through an extremely difficult time as there were numerous groups uh, in the church that I was pastoring, uh, creating enormous difficulty for me, uh, even organizing attempts to to put me out of the church, to put me out of the pulpit, and as I was um, somewhat discouraged, as I read about John Rogers, it, it was like God's IV hookup of encouragement for me. And by the time the plane landed, after having read about John Rogers, I was extraordinarily encouraged. In fact, even to this day, every time that I preach in the front of my preaching Bible, I keep a picture of John Rogers. And in the back of my preaching Bible, a picture of John Rogers being burned at the stake, Smithfield, London, February the 4th, 1555. And as I looked at the life of John Rogers, I realized I've never had a bad day. Uh, it, it put everything in right perspective, and Jonathan Edwards, in his seventy resolutions, wrote that he would continually meditate on the death of the martyrs, and by that, not in a in, in a in a defeatist type attitude, but it keeps everything in right perspective, that the trials and tribulations that I'm going through do not compare with the pain and the sacrifice that has been made by those who have gone before us. So my hope for you is that this would actually be an encouragement to you, that it would instill, instill steel in your spiritual backbone, that it would fan the flame of, of hope, and that you would be filled with a, a new confidence in your ministry and in your God. And the reason that I think we it is worthy to study and give thought to the life of John Rogers—he's not someone that you may be familiar with—he was an English reformer. Um, we're very familiar with the German reformers, uh, beginning with Martin Luther and the Swiss reformers Zwingli and Calvin, and the Scottish reformer John Knox and other English reformers. But John Rogers—why would we study John Rogers? Well, he was first in three things that bear our attention. Uh, First of all, he is the first man to ever produce a complete English Bible translated from the original languages. Let me say that again. He was the first man to ever complete and, and produce an entire Bible in the English language that was translated from the original languages. Uh, William Tyndale, with whom he worked, uh, translated the Old Testament. He edited it twice. He translated the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Tyndale translated Joshua through Second Chronicles, though it was not published at the time of his capture and imprisonment. And he translated the book of Jonah, because he wanted every preacher in England to be like Jonah and to say, 40 days... And London will be destroyed. Forty days, and Birmingham will be destroyed. But the rest of the Old Testament had not been translated by Tyndale at the time of his capture. Miles Coverdale uh, translated the rest of those in the Coverdale Bible, but he did not know Hebrew. And so he did not do it from the original languages. He had to translate off of Luther's German Bible and some Reformed commentaries and use the Latin Vulgate. But it was John Rogers who was the very first man to cover to cover produce an English Bible that is translated from the original languages, though a vast majority of that work was done by Tyndale He completed what Tyndale began. The second thing in which he was first is he was the first to produce a comprehensive commentary of the entire Bible. It would not be exhaustive as we know commentaries today, but with the study notes, some 2,000 study notes that he supplied to his Bible known as the Matthew Bible, it really became the first Genesis to Revelation commentary in the English language that would cover the whole. And the third matter in which he was first is he was the first to be martyred by Bloody Mary at the stake in London. And it is for this that he is deserving of our attention today. J.C. Ryle writes, John Rogers is a man who deserves to be held in peculiar honor by all English Protestants, for one simple reason. He was the first of that band, of that noble band of Christian heroes who suffered martyrdom for God's truth in Mary's reign. By his courage and constancy at the stake, he supplied a glorious example to all who followed him and mightily helped move forward the English Reformation. And then Ryle summarizes. In that noble army of English martyrs, he was eminently a standard bearer. In other words, he was carrying the banner of truth at the tip of the spear in the English Reformation. So, let's, let's fly over his life. Let's survey his life. And I, I, I like what John Piper says, my, my best friends are dead men. And there is so much encouragement and strength for us to draw as we observe those who have gone before us. It really becomes the extension of Hebrews 11, by faith, John Rogers. So let's consider the life and ministry of John Rogers. He was born in 1500 in a small town outside in the outskirts of Birmingham, England, It was at a time in which the spiritual darkness that shrouded the land of England would be virtually incomprehensible to us today. It was a land that had hardly any gospel knowledge or any gospel truth. In fact, Parliament had passed legislation that it was a crime against the king of England to produce an English Bible to own an English Bible, to use an English Bible. The only language that was was translated and used in all of England was a Latin Vulgate. And the problem was the vast majority of the people did not understand Latin. Uh, That was the language of the university classroom uh, that would be used at Oxford and Cambridge. But for the, the blacksmith, for the farmer in the field... For, for the housewife, it, it was an unknown tongue. And as people would come to church, the preaching was in Latin, from a Latin Bible. Uh, there was gross ignorance of the of the highest order. As you recall, it was William Tyndale's life mission that a plowboy in the field would know more of the Word of God than the Pope in Rome by translating the Bible into the English language. That That was the state of England into which John Rogers was born. He attended Cambridge University, Pembroke College, where he was well-educated at the highest level. And by the way, all the Reformers were educated at the, at the highest level of, of the day. They, they were graduates of Oxford, of Cambridge, of St. Andrews, of Edinburgh, of Paris, of Bordeaux, um, of Wittenberg, they, they were all highly brilliant, wealth educated men whom God used mightily. And it is not to say that you have to graduate at the highest level, but it is to say that you must be someone who knows how to think, someone who knows how to read, someone who knows how to speak, someone who knows how to write, someone who knows how to articulate their message. And John Rogers was the product of Cambridge University, which was the intellectual rival of Oxford at the time. He graduated in 1526 with a bachelor's degree, and he was immediately recognized for his astute brilliance, and he was hired by Oxford as soon as he graduated, as a new college was, uh, Christ's college was being formed. Eventually, John Owen would be the dean over Christ College, but at this time it was, it was extremely Catholic to the nth degree, and there Rogers uh, taught as a junior canon. Brilliant mind, he was ordained as a priest in the Catholic Church, and all the reformers grew up from within the Catholic Church. In 1532, Rogers moved to London where he became the rector-pastor at Trinity the Less, a Catholic church where he oversaw a parish, where he preached, where he believed. And yet, at this point, he is unconverted. He does not know God. He does not know Christ. He, He has not been born again by the Spirit of God from above. And two years later, in 1534, being disillusioned with the church, Rogers left England for the continent of Europe. There he would remain for the next 13 years. And he traveled to Antwerp, which is in modern-day Belgium, and there was a a gathering of of British merchants who all lived in a a large dorm-like house as they conducted their business. Uh, in in the cloth industry, selling purchasing cloth, selling it in England, they're very prosperous, and they'd become sympathetic to the the Lutheran movement, which would be the Protestant movement. And Rogers became the chaplain at what was known as the Company of the Merchant Adventurers. Well, it just so happens that these British English businessmen gave their back room to a young man named William Tyndale, who was translating the Bible under candlelight, remaining anonymous, hiding from the multiple attempts from Henry VIII and from the Bishop of London, multiple attempts to, to try to find Tyndale and to bring him back to To England to be put to death. And in the remarkable providence of God, John Rogers finds himself in the same dorm-like house as William Tyndale. It is there that he also meets Miles Coverdale, and the three of them became tightly bound together, and it was through the witness of William Tyndale that John Rogers came to faith in Jesus Christ. John Fox writes in Fox's Book of Martyrs, "...it chanced Rogers there to fall in company with that worthy servant and martyr of God, William Tyndale, and with Miles Coverdale, which both for for the hatred they bore to popish superstition and idolatry, and love to true religion, had forsaken their native country." In comparing with them the Scriptures, Rogers came to a great knowledge in the gospel of God, insomuch that he cast off the heavy yoke of popery, perceiving it to be impure and filthy idolatry, close quote, which it in fact was and remains to this day. And Rogers came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ there in the company of William. Tyndale. Fox also goes on to explain that before Tyndale was arrested in the year 1535, that that Tyndale, Coverdale, and John Rogers working together, obviously Tyndale, the point man, the brilliant intellect. Tyndale was proficient in eight languages. He, he, He was so proficient in all of the Uh, eight languages that when he spoke it, it was said that you would assume that he grew up next door to you. Not only could he write it and read it, but he could speak it with perfect fluency. Uh, Tyndale is the point man, and he produces a New Testament that was so wonderfully translated that when the King James Version was produced in 1611 it is estimated that 85% of the King James Bible is in reality William Tyndale's translation. That committees of over 40 people working from 1608 to 1611 on the King James Version, the authorized version, could not improve on the flawless translation of this one man, William Tyndale. Well, John Rogers and Tyndale... And Coverdale, they begin a plan to come up with what was known as the Matthew Bible. The Matthew Bible would be ultimately completed by John Rogers. And the Matthew Bible would become, as I've already said, the first Bible in the English language translated cover to cover from the original languages. At this time, John Rogers was 35 years old, Tyndale was 40, and Coverdale was 47. And in 1534, 35 really, Tyndale was arrested. I, I wish I had time to deviate for a moment and give you the historical footnote on Tyndale's arrest and his imprisonment. We'll have to save that for another time. But it was John Rogers, after Tyndale was arrested, who went back to the dorm-like house where Tyndale had been doing his work, and it is believed he is the one who gathered up Tyndale's work and escaped with it before the authorities could come and apprehend it. Joshua, through Second Chronicles, had been translated by Tyndale, but it had not yet been published. So, Coverdale takes Tyndale's work also and goes back to England, and he has it translated um, from not the original language uh, language Hebrew, parts of Daniel and Aramaic, but from Luther's German Bible from the Latin Vulgate, etc., to produce in 1535 the Coverdale Bible. Um, it was... Uh, Not a precise translation. In many places, it was not an accurate translation. And so, the spotlight then turns back to Rogers. And John Rogers was proficient in language, and he knew Hebrew. At this time, there were no Hebrew teachers in all of England. England was shrouded in in ignorance in things that dealt with biblical truth. Nevertheless, Rogers was able to carry on the work. And so what Rogers did is he came in and he took the third edition of Tyndale's New Testament. In the second edition, Tyndale made some 4,000 edits to his 1526 edition. Continually upgrading significantly to the second version fifteen thirty four he then makes some more um, edits in the fifteen thirty five edition and, and and Tyndale is like an obsessive perfectionist, uh, doing all that he can to render the Bible for the people of England in the most um, accurate and yet readable fashion. So Rogers takes this New Testament, he takes the Pentateuch which which Tyndale had produced, and by the way, the glossaries at the end of each book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he had to create a, a glossary at the end of these books because Tyndale is inventing words that have never been coined before as he's translating Uh, Words like atonement, words like Jehovah, words like ark, that people, when they read their English Bible, will not fully understand. And so these glossaries at the end of each of the first five books in the Old Testament actually become the first English dictionary. There will not be an English dictionary until 1703. That is the first English dictionary. So with every, every line that Tyndale is translating, he is actually standardizing the English language. And he is standardizing the way words are being spelled. Uh, Tyndale is becoming the father of the modern English language. Uh, for example, when Wycliffe translated the Bible into the English language uh, 150 years earlier... It was in Middle English, which is dense and, 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 and hard to read and, and hard to operate in. And so Tyndale has given a gift to every English-speaking person on the planet in that he is the one who is standardizing the language that we use, whether it's biblical teaching or whether it's daily conversation. Well, ten, uh, Rogers takes Tyndale's work, and he takes Coverdale's work, and he has to come in and painfully edit and retranslate Miles Coverdale's work. And he, he, he does it in, 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 in a rapid amount of time, and as he does so, it, it becomes now the text for what is known as the Matthew Bible. He had to publish this under a pseudonym, Thomas Matthew, so that his identity would remain anonymous. And by the way, just another little footnote, we have two portraits of William Tyndale. One hangs at Oxford, the other hangs in London. Those were both painted posthumously after he died because Tyndale could not allow anyone to know what he looks like because he is hiding from the authorities of England. And so, Rogers is having to operate under the same veil of of anonymity. And so, as he produces his Bible, the Matthew Bible, he has to do so with a a, a made-up name. Um, He makes some 330 edits to Tyndale's translation... Of the Pentateuch and the, the New Testament. He supplies margin notes in the margin, some 2,000, from which he draws from Tyndale's work, and he draws from uh, a French Bible uh, that was produced by Calvin's cousin. Um, he, he draws from Tyndale's prologue to the book of, of Romans, and he draws materials from from this French Bible. He adds chapter summaries uh, drawn from the French Bible, and he produces the first English concordance for the Bible. He produces the first commentary on important doctrines uh, in the English language, and he produces tables of places and people in the Bible. He chooses to help interpret the difficult passages of Scripture by appealing to those, as John Knox would say, uh, that the clearer passages would interpret the more difficult passages. Um, Like Thomas Watson once said, the great Puritan, as only a diamond is sharp enough to cut another diamond, only the Bible is sharp enough to interpret the Bible, and that the Bible becomes the premier interpreter of Scripture Itself, And so, Rogers is, is locked in on that, and he is comparing cross-references with passages. And it was said that the Catholic um, clergy regarded John Rogers' notes in his produced Bible and his preference, uh, prefaces to the Testaments and certain books as more dangerous than the biblical text itself because he was bringing such clarity to, to sound doctrine, so the Matthew Bible that he produces becomes virtually a theological library uh, unto itself, especially at this day and time. And so it was published in 1537. Uh, just to give you a historical perspective, Tyndale is martyred in 1536. 1536. John Calvin goes to Geneva in 1536. The Coverdale Bible was produced in 1535 before Tyndale was martyred, while he was being held captive at the Val Vorde Castle. It would be in 1537 now that John Rogers produces this really literary masterpiece of the Matthew Bible. Uh, there were 1,500 copies that were produced. They were printed in Antwerp and then printed in Paris. They had to be smuggled into England under the cloak of night. Uh, as you recall, Tyndale had to smuggle in his Bibles in bales of cotton. There on the coastline, uh, uh, reform-minded merchants would would buy the bales and then distribute the the Bibles and... Rogers is doing much the same. This is a remarkable feat that Rogers produces in a day in which you write with a quill being dipped into a little puddle of ink and that you're doing this under candlelight and it is being hand-set to be printed. Uh, this is a remarkable achievement. The Matthew Bible begins with a 20-page summary of the whole Bible. Um, He has a brief history of the world from creation to the year 1537, and His important doctrines that He uh, summarizes in His Matthew Bible is entitled, The Sum and Contents of All the Scriptures, both of the Old Testament and the New Testament, It's followed by uh, uh, an article that he wrote, An Exhortation to the Study of the Holy Scriptures. He he includes a 26-page, a table of common places, and when Thomas Cranmer, who was the archbishop in England, saw the Matthew Bible, he said, it is a better translation than any other translation that he has read. He appeals to the King of England, who is Henry Eighth, and Henry the Eighth gives to John Rogers what he never gave to William Tyndale. God has softened the heart of the king. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. As rivers of water, he channels it whichever way he will. And God channeled the heart of the king to now give to John Rogers' translation the royal license for this now to be printed in England, and it is urged that every parish begin to purchase copies of the Matthew Bible. This same year, in 1537, he marries a Dutch woman, um, and... Upon marrying her in Antwerp, he flees with her to Wittenberg. He wants to go to Martin Luther. And he goes to Wittenberg to continue to study the Bible and to sharpen his understanding of Scripture. And he enrolls at the University of Wittenberg where Martin Luther is the professor of Bible And Philip Melanchthon is the professor of Greek exegesis, and he is being trained and taught and taken to an even higher level of proficiency in the Word of God. And this also puts him in the inner circle of the European Reformers, uh, being as iron sharpens iron, so one man another. And so, John Rogers is being further trained to be a leading voice in the Reformation. Well, he leaves Wittenberg. He goes to another location in Germany where he pastors. And in 1547, Henry VIII dies, king of England. And he is replaced on the throne by Edward VI, the boy king, age nine, who had been trained by Protestants, Protestant uh, instructors and teachers, and imbibe the doctrines of the Reformation, which means the doctrines of the Bible, okay? And he now assumes the throne of England, and he is so Protestant that Edward VI even appoints John Knox to be one of his royal chaplains, and dispenses Knox to go throughout England preaching the doctrines of The Reformation, it is a new day in England now because of Edward VI. So, because of this, John Rogers feels it is now safe for him to return from Germany to come back to his native land. And in 1548, John Rogers returns home after a 13-year stay in Europe. His reputation precedes him within the inner circles of the Reformation. People know who is the editor and translator and assembler of, of the material in the Matthew Bible, and so they give John Rogers places of, of prominence immediately in London. He becomes the vicar of St. Margaret in London in the same position as St. Sepulchre in London, and next year in 1551, the Bishop of London, Nicholas Ridley, who was one of the two men who was burned at the stake, the same stake at at Oxford, appoints John Rogers to be one of his chaplains so that he can commission him to, to preach the doctrines of the Reformation in England and the surrounding area, and so John Rogers is being woven into the tapestry of the English Reformation. The next year, 1552, he is appointed to be one of the preachers at St. Paul's Cathedral. I mean, St. Paul's Cathedral is that extraordinary church in London. During World War II, when Churchill would wake up every morning from his bunker, the first question he would ask is Is it still standing? Everyone understood what the it was. It's St. Paul's Cathedral. And so John Rogers is a preacher now appointed at St. Paul's Cathedral. He's at the epicenter of London, and London is the epicenter of England. He is right in the middle of the English Reformation. The next year, 1553, he's made a divine lecturer at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and he preached with power, and he preached with great authority, and he spoke out against the externalized religion of the day, and the dead ritualism, and the false gospel that remained in the church of, of England. He, he was a, a tour de force, a prolific, polemic figure that, brought, that wielded a devastating blow to the false religion of, of Rome. But that same year, 1553, a great tragedy struck England. The king of England, Edward VI, died at the age of 15. And as you know, the king or the queen of England is the head of the Church of England, the defender of the faith. And so whoever sits on the throne has the influence to appoint the Archbishop of Canterbury and to control, in many ways, the religion in England. And so there has never been a seismic shift that has ever taken place so quickly overnight as when Edward VI died, who was a staunch Protestant, and then after this little hiccup with... With Lady Jane, Mary I assumes the throne of England. She was a strict, staunch, hell bent Catholic to the nth degree, and she was a woman on a mission to change the religion of England. Well, Rogers continued to preach. Rogers has only one gear shift, and that is forward. He's like a man playing a violin that has only one string. And he blasted, quote, popery, idolatry, and superstition, close quote, of the new administration of Mary, which was in reality the old administration of Rome. John Rogers now has a red laser on his forehead. John Rogers is now a marked man because he has become such a public figure, standing out in a loud trumpet-like voice, preaching the Word of God. And on August the 16th, 1553, Rogers was arrested and summoned before Mary's council And he was interrogated concerning his Protestant beliefs and his anti-Catholic polemics. And at his trial, which was really a heresy trial, Roger spoke openly of his Protestant beliefs. He testified, quote, I was asked whether I believed in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary and hanged on the cross in other words, in the Mass, does the wine become the very blood of Christ? And does the bread become the very body of Christ? Is the crucifixion of Christ continuing in heaven? Is there the flow of the blood? from Christ's side in heaven into this communion cup? That was the question. He's put on trial, not for the Matthew Bible. He is put on trial for rejecting the doctrine of transubstantiation. And Edward uh, Rogers answered, I think it to be false. I, can't under, I cannot understand really and substantially to signify others otherwise than corporally. But corporally, and by that he means in body, Christ is only in heaven. And so Christ cannot be corporally, meaning bodily, in the sacrament. Jesus was was raised from the dead. He is in a glorified body. That body is at the right hand of God the Father... And it will be in that body that the heavens will open and Jesus Christ will return to this earth. He he is confined to one physical corporal body. And it is impossible, Rogers said, for that body to be at the right hand of God the Father and that same corporal body to be everywhere, a priest says, hocus pocus over the elements, and that the blood and the body of Christ appears here upon the earth. And Rogers called it blasphemous and an abomination. Rogers was charged with heresy and confined to his house and stripped of his ministry at St. Paul's Cathedral. It cost him everything. And in January 1554, the bishop, the new bishop of London that Mary has now Appointed, sentenced Rogers to incarceration at Newgate Prison in London among, quote, thieves and murderers, close quote, for an entire year. Rogers made appeals to be able to to enter testimony and they were all denied. In December 1554, Parliament reenacted previous penal statutes that had been levied against wickless preachers. Two days later, excuse me, January 22nd, 1552, only two days after these statutes had been reinstated, Rogers was drug out of prison, taken back before the authorities, and tried as one who was a Wycliffeite, one who was preaching the same doctrines that had been preached by the Lollard preachers who were sent out by John Wycliffe. On January 28th and 29th, 1555, Rogers was hastily brought before a special commission where formal charges of heresy were brought against him, just like those charges had been brought against William Tyndale before they hung him to death and burned his body. Rogers was condemned as a heretic and was sentenced to be burned at the stake for denying Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Rogers held fast to the truth. He would not budge. He was taken back to Newgate Castle to await his impending execution. On Sunday, February the 4th, 1555, a day that shall live, as it has been said, in infamy, Rogers was brought before the Bishop of London He made only one request to have a final word to his wife. He was denied that request. The time came for Rogers to be led to Smithfield in London for the public burning. To this point, a reformer has not been burned at the stake. To this point, people wondered, will our pastor hold fast to his convictions or will he buckle and bend? The sheriff made a final appeal to Rogers, asking if he would revoke his evil opinion of the mass. Rogers answered, that which I have preached I will seal with my blood. The sheriff said, then you are a heretic. Rogers replied, that will be known on the last day. The sheriff said, well, I will never pray for you. And Rogers responded, but I will pray for you. Rogers was hastily brought out of his cell and led on foot through the streets of Smithfield, and that was the practice of the day. It was to walk the preacher through the neighborhood that he pastored so that his entire congregation would see him as a marked, condemned man, as like Jesus carrying his cross on the Via della Rosa, as, as a public disgrace and, and shame. And so, Rogers is paraded through the streets of Smithfield, which is a a subdivision there in London. His wife and ten children stood along the way. The youngest child he had never seen because the youngest child was delivered while he was in Newgate Prison. He was forbidden to stop to express a parting farewell. And as Rogers goes to the stake before this large, assembly of people who have turned out both his own church members as well as people in the community, he goes repeating Psalm 51, which he himself had retranslated in the Matthew Bible and was very familiar with Psalm 51 as this immense crowd lined both sides of the street. Whenever I take a group to London, it's the first place we go. We go to Smithfield. There's a plaque on the back of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, interestingly enough, where Martin Lloyd-Jones practiced medicine centuries later, that marks the spot where John Rogers was executed. No one knew what would take place as he is led to the stake. The enthusiasm of the crowd grew strong, his own church members urging him on to remain true to the faith. And the French ambassador was present there that day. Many believe Mary was present on the second floor of a building overlooking the execution site. The French ambassador wrote, This day was performed the confirmation of the alliance between the Pope and this kingdom, referring to England, by a public and solemn sacrifice of a preaching doctor named Roger's. "...who has been burned alive for being a Lutheran, but he died persisting in his opinion. At this conduct, the greatest part of the people were not afraid to make him many exclamations to strengthen his courage. Even his own children assisted in encouraging him, comforting him in such a manner." And I love this. It says, "...it seemed as if he was being led to his own wedding." He had such peace and such confidence in his convictions. Fox's Book of Martyr puts it this way. The fire was put to him, and when it had taken hold both his legs and shoulders, he, as one feeling no smart, washed his hands in the flame as though it had been in cold water and lifting up his hands unto heaven, not removing the same until such time as the devouring fire had consumed them, most mildly, this happy martyr. What an oxymoron. This happy martyr yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly Father. I once had a woman ask me on a tour that I led through London. How how do we know all this? Well, the fact is John Fox interviewed eyewitnesses and personal testimonies of people who were present as well as in other instances such as at Oxford with Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer, the public record that was kept by the Catholic Church. Fox goes on to say, "...a little before his burning, his pardon was brought..." In other words, if you will recant, we'll pull you out of the fire. Here is your pardon. A little before his burning, his pardon was brought. If he would have recanted, but he utterly refused it. He was the first of all the blessed company that suffered in the reign of Queen Mary. His wife and children met him, by the way, as he went towards Smithfield, this sorrowful side of his own flesh and blood could not move him. But he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and quarrel of the gospel of Christ. It's like John Wesley once said of the Methodists, our people die well. John Rogers died well, a towering testimony of his allegiance and loyalty to the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mary intended the martyrdom of Rogers. He was marked out number one on the list, on the hit list. She intended that to strike a devastating blow to the Reformation, but instead it produced the opposite effect. And the example of Rogers spread like wildfire throughout London and throughout England to bolster the courage of the other Protestants and the other Reformers that Rogers would not bow. Rogers would not bend. Rogers would burn, but he would not bend. That it so infused strength into the souls of the other believers of the day that we have the account of how Ridley, Latimer, and Cranmer have been arrested and taken to Oxford to stand heresy trial. They are moved further inland... So there could be no attempt for their escape to get to the coastline. So they were moved inland to Oxford. And and a man has given to me Fox's Book of Martyrs, the original Fox Book of Martyrs that was published while Fox was still alive. And today our version is like this. In that day it was like this. The Catholic Church has removed so much of Fox's Book of Martyrs, but we have the court records of the heresy trials of Latimer and Ridley and and Cranmer, it is extraordinary. But when they are being held in Oxford and they receive the word that Rogers would not recant of his faith in Christ, it was written, our dear brother has broken the ice valiantly. And Ridley, who was the previous bishop of London, wrote, I bless God with all my heart in this manifold merciful gifts given to our dear brethren in Christ, especially to our brother Rogers, whom it pleased to set forth him. I trust to God it shall please him of his goodness to strengthen me, to make up the Trinity, and the Trinity was Rogers, Bradford, and himself out of St. Paul's church to suffer for Christ. Ridley then went on to write to Bradford, who would eventually be put to death by Mary as well. I thank our Lord God and Heavenly Father by Christ that since I heard of our dear brother Roger's departing and stout confession of Christ and his truth even to the death, blessed be God, so rejoiced of it that since that time I say I never felt any lumpish heaviness in my heart, as I, had helped, as I had felt before. In other words, Ridley was saying, I was fearful before Roger's martyrdom. But upon hearing how he held fast the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints, that it dispelled his own fear. And you know the account of how he was taken from the prison there in Oxford along with Latimer, who was the greatest preacher of the English Reformation. These are not sidelined peripheral figures. Latimer was the greatest preacher of the whole English Reformation, who preached the most famous sermon of the entire English Reformation. The plowman on the field. As well as Ridley, who was the foremost organizer of the English Reformation and Cranmer who was considered to be the foremost theologian of the English Reformation. I mean, these are the principal figures that are now held in prison and are being marched out to be burned at the stake publicly. You recall how Latimer and Ridley were tied to the same stake and Latimer said to Ridley, as the fire was put to the wood, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. And it is safe to say that it was the example of John Rogers that infused spiritual adrenaline into Latimer and Ridley as they were being held at Oxford. So what do we learn from John Rogers? Let me just tie a ribbon around this. Three things. Number one, in serving God, we must be willing to stand alone. Rogers was willing to break from the pack. The majority is never right. And we too must be willing to step out of the crowd to follow Christ and to serve Him. The many are on the broad path. The few are on the narrow path. God plus one still makes a majority. So we must be willing to stand alone, if need be, for our convictions in Christ and not look to the left or to the right. Second, we must be willing to pay a price to stand alone for Christ. To stand alone for Christ means to always be swimming upstream against the current. It means to always be faced with opposition and resistance. And the price will always be great to stand alone. It will mean, like for Roger's, loss of friends, loss of comfort, loss of ease, For Rogers, it meant loss of country and loss of livelihood and even loss of life. Rogers paid a hefty price. And so it will cost us. And third and finally, standing alone leads to blessings to others. It was by Rogers' sacrifice that the Bible came to the English-speaking world. Untold, millions and millions, no exaggeration, have benefited from every drop of sweat and blood that he gave up for producing an English Bible. Always know that every sacrifice that you make in one way or another, will bring spiritual good to others. Whether it be to your family, whether it be to your church, whether it be to your ministry, whether it be to your nation, or whether it be to the world, our sacrifice for the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth it, as it is used by God. To advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in one way or another. Well, this is our friend, John Rogers. And may God's grace that was so evident in his life spill over into our lives. May we be turbocharged by the Holy Spirit of God, to stand strong in these days in which the United States will soon become much like England at the beginning of the 16th century, as a dark cloud of spiritual ignorance will begin to hover over our land and snuff out what little light there has been. May we be points of light. In dark days, just like John Rogers. Let us thank the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for the example of this man, John Rogers. He's only a man, a sinner, saved by grace, an instrument in your hand, a man whom you had foreordained good works. accomplish. And he persevered, and he endured to complete the tasks that were set before him, no matter what the cost. And so, Father, infuse this kind of heroic faith in us. Bolster our faith. Deepen our roots in your Word and in Christ. And may we be willing to stand alone when the time comes, and to pay a great price for what is right and for what is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.